I think Cymbeline is one of Shakespeare's most artistically intense and rewarding plays. Everything you might want in a Shakespeare play, I would say you find in Cymbeline. You have lost children. You have wicked stepmothers. You have two dreadful villains. You have wonderful coup de théâtre. You have bucolic exile. It has battles. It has meetings and emotional resolutions galore. There are 24 separate plot resolutions in the final scene alone. So I really see Cymbeline as the high point of Shakespeare's artistic richness and playwriting intensity. Also, I would draw you to Cymbeline as a play for our times. I think this is Shakespeare's comment on internationalism versus nationalism, on working together as uh, a country and a polity rather than closing off and closing doors. And I think that is a message very much for our times. Hello, my name is Will Tosh and I'm research fellow and lecturer at Shakespeare's Globe in London. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today we're speaking with Dr Tosh about Cymbeline. Written around 1610, this play combines elements of tragedy, comedy and history, and many elements from other Shakespearean plays. Like King Lear, Cymbeline is a king who reigned in ancient Britain and who is estranged from a beloved daughter. Princess Imogen goes against his will and marries a lower-born gentleman named Posthumus. Posthumus is exiled from Britain and travels to Italy, where the devious Iachimo wages that he can persuade Imogen to break her marriage vows and sleep with him. Iachimo tricks Posthumus into believing that the faithful Imogen really did betray him. Posthumus, like Othello, is provoked with jealous anger and orders a servant to kill Imogen. The stage is set for tragedy. But Imogen escapes into the wilderness and, like other Shakespearean heroines, changes her fortunes while disguised as a man. The play finally draws together dozens of complex narrative elements in the most astounding scene of resolution in all of Shakespeare's canon, as lovers, families, kingdoms, empires, and even the divine and human worlds are reconciled in an extraordinary moment of peace. A moment that is all the more moving for the extraordinary story that preceded it. My pre-show words to anyone for any Shakespeare play will be relax. Relax and enjoy. And I think that probably applies to Cymbeline more than, more than some others. You have dazzling sort of impressionistic verse that takes you on a journey even as you're not entirely sure that you've understood every word. There's the magical trick that Shakespeare has of making himself limpidly clear, even as you as a listener are kind of chasing a little bit to keep up with, with what he's doing. Give it a go now and see, and, and see where it takes you. Forget anything you've heard about this being a, a kind of weird, difficult late play. It is an absolute gem of a play and will take you on an extraordinary emotional journey and you just have to go with it. Cymbeline opens with two crises, one from the present and one from the past. Princess Imogen, daughter of King Cymbeline, has married a poor but worthy gentleman named Posthumus Leonatus. 
Cymbeline wanted Imogen to marry his stepson, Prince Clotten, and he is outraged that she secretly married a humble orphan. He banishes Posthumus from Britain, and the couple say a tearful farewell before Posthumus leaves for Rome. Imogen gives him a diamond ring as a token of her love, and Posthumus gives her a bracelet. Cymbeline also had two other children, but, we learn, these two sons were kidnapped from the court 20 years ago, and no one has seen them since. Cymbeline's second wife, the cunning queen, wanted to use Imogen to advance her own son to the throne. But Imogen detests her deceitful stepmother and her vain, foolish son Clotten, who fights and insults everyone he meets. In the next scene, we find Posthumus in Rome. The play is set in the time of the Roman Empire during the reign of Augustus Caesar, but the Italians encountered by Posthumus seem rather more contemporary. This play shifts between England and Rome, but the England and Rome of those settings are are not necessarily firmly fixed in the days of ancient Britain. When the action shifts to Rome, we're seeing a kind of rather decadent, rather modern Italian culture, or Italian culture as imagined by Shakespeare. This is a Rome of contemporary Renaissance Italy in the kind of prejudiced mind's eye of an Englishman, which is a place of kind of loose living and sexual immorality. In this decadent cosmopolitan centre, Posthumus proudly declares the chastity and virtue of his wife. A suave, cunning Italian named Iacomo wagers that he can convince Imogen to sleep with him. Posthumus, sure that his wife will be faithful, takes him up on the bet. So the wager plot is drawn from a story in the Decameron, Boccaccio's The Decameron. That story itself is kind of spun out and and, and further explored in a a sort of another little story that gets printed throughout the 16th century um, and it's published in the Low Countries in Germany and in England. and, And it's almost like a kind of meme, this sort of wager plot of the man who boasts about the chastity of his wife and that chastity is tested through untoward means. It sort of makes no sense. But it kind of does in the sense that 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 sort of male fragility and anxiety around sexuality is such a powerful force. In Britain, the Queen asks the court doctor for poison and gives it to Pisanio, telling him it is medicine. She knows Pisanio is loyal to Posthumus and an enemy to Clotten. And, unless Imogen agrees to marry Clotten, the Queen plans to poison her too. But, knowing that the malicious Queen might try to kill her enemies, the Doctor actually gives her a harmless sleeping potion. Iacomo arrives in Britain with a letter of introduction from Posthumus. He tells Imogen, falsely, that Posthumus is entertaining himself with prostitutes in Rome. At first, Imogen is grieved. Then, Iacomo feigns warm indignation on her behalf and urges her to take a lover for herself. Revenge it! I dedicate myself to your sweet pleasure. Imogen, horrified by his proposition, calls him out as a liar and says that she disdains him and the devil alike. Since Imogen rejected his first advance, Yakimo tries another tactic to win the wager. 
He tells her that he invented this story about Posthumus's infidelity to her to see if her love was deeply rooted. Imogen is placated and he asks a favour of her to look after his trunk of treasure for the night. She agrees to keep it in her bedchamber and then later, as Imogen sleeps, the trunk opens and Giacomo climbs out. It's extraordinary in performance, not least because invariably there'll be a a knuckle-clenching pause between Imogen falling asleep and the the sort of lid of the trunk creaking open and Giacomo clambering out. Just, you know, skin-crawling. And we have this uh, sort of exquisitely hideous speech that draws on centuries of poeticised seduction, poeticised erotic violence, poeticised assault. He observes everything closely, the decorations on the wall, the book she has been reading, and Imogen herself. He takes from her arm the bracelet that Posthumus gave her and observes that she has a mole on her left breast. Finally, he slips back into the trunk, saying, I lodge in fear, though this a heavenly angel, hell is here. Iacomo carries the bracelet back to Rome, where he tells Posthumus that he won the wager. He describes Imogen's bedchamber, shows him the bracelet, and then finally adds, Under her breast lies a mole. You do remember this stain upon her. Aye, and it doth confirm another stain as big as hell can hold, the anguish Posthumus cries. He's convinced that Imogen betrayed him. Oh, that I had her here to tear her limb meal! The Roman Emperor Augustus Caesar sends his ambassador Caius Lucius to Britain. Lucius reminds Cymbeline that Britain has not paid the tribute they owe to Rome. The Queen and Clotten tell him defiantly that they never will. Britain's a world by itself, and we will nothing pay for wearing our own noses, Clotten says. Cymbeline follows the headstrong lead of Clotten and the Queen and refuses to pay the tribute. Lucius says Britain must prepare for war with Rome. Pisanio, Posthumus's servant at court, enters in distress. Posthumus has written to him saying that Imogen committed adultery and that he should therefore kill her. He also says that he has written a letter to Imogen that will give Pisanio an opportunity to do just that. Posthumus's letter to Imogen tells her that he is at Milford Haven in Wales and that she should meet him there. Imogen, oblivious to the plot, asks Pisanio to help her escape to Milford Haven. We have ancient Britain, we have ancient Rome, we kind of have modern Rome, and we also have the the version of the green world in this play, the the space beyond the court, the wilderness, which in in Cymbeline is quite specific. It's the mountains around Milford Haven in, in, in Wales. The action shifts to Wales, where we meet an old man, Morgan, and his two sons, Codwall and Polydor, who live a rustic life in a cave. Morgan was previously a soldier named Belarius who served Cymbeline with honour. Despite these years of faithful service, Cymbeline believed two lying soldiers who told him Morgan was a traitor and banished Morgan from England. 
Since then, he has lived in honest freedom in the country. When the boys go hunting, Morgan reveals that they are really Guiderius and Arviragus, the lost sons of Cymbeline. He kidnapped them as revenge for his unjust banishment, but he fears he will not be able to conceal them for long. It's getting kind of impossible to hide the fact that they're princes. They sort of demonstrate their their nobility and princeliness and and, and, and general all-round excellence. So that unbelievably common trope of the foundling child who grows up to reveal their true origin. Bassanio and Imogen journey towards Milford Haven. Imogen is confused at Posthumus's absence and the unhappy Bassanio shows her the letter Posthumus sent him. Thy mistress, Pisanio, hath played the strumpet in my bed, she reads. Let thine own hands take away her life. I shall give the opportunity at Milford Haven. Devastated, Imogen tells Pisanio to carry out Posthumus's orders and kill her. But Pisanio suggests another plan. The Roman ambassador Lucius is coming to Milford Haven. Pisanio urges Imogen to disguise herself as a boy, become Lucius's servant, travel with him to Rome, and find Posthumus. Imogen agrees, and Pisanio gives her men's clothing and some medicine. May the gods direct you to the best, he prays. Wandering in the wilderness, Imogen stumbles upon Morgan's cave. She introduces herself to Morgan, Polydor, and Codwell as a boy, Fidele, and they welcome her warmly. I'll love him as my brother, says Codwall. Were you a woman, youth, I should woo hard, says Polydor. When Imogen, who is dressed as Fidele, the boy Fidele, arrives and kind of falls in with them, they instantly develop a sort of incredibly intense, courtly passion for the boy which is sort of brilliantly queer on one level. Also quite complex because she is their sister, and that's evidently what they're feeling as well, but also shows their courtly sensibility. They are able to flip really quickly between a sort of martial high-bloodedness, a kind of princely heroism, and a sort of deeply affective princely sentimentality when thinking about Fidele. Clotten now journeys towards Milford Haven, wearing a suit of Posthumus's clothes. He wants to find Posthumus and Imogen and take revenge on Imogen for rejecting him. He plans to kill Posthumus and rape Imogen for greater spite with her husband's clothes on. He too passes near Morgan's cave. Polydor confronts him and, when they fight, he cuts off Clotten's head. Polydor and Codwall return home to find what appears to be another death. Imogen, as for Daly, is lying still and apparently lifeless. They grieve and sing a song of mourning. Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. Thou thy worldly task hast done, home art gone and ta'en thy wages. Golden lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers, come to dust. Then they lay Imogen's body in a grave beside the headless body of Clotten. After they have left, however, Imogen awakes. 
she had taken Pisanio's medicine, which was the sleeping potion that the doctor gave the queen and the queen gave Pisanio. Now she awakes to find a headless corpse dressed in Posthumus's clothes, and she believes the murdered man is her husband. Lucius arrives with Roman soldiers. They find Imogen, still dressed as a boy, grieving over Posthumus's body like a servant grieving for his master. Lucius invites Fidele to enter his service, saying, Be cheerful, wipe thine eyes, some fools are means the happier to arise. Codwall and Polydor learn that Roman armies are invading, and, moved by their princely instinct of honour, decide to join Cymbeline's army and fight for Britain. Morgan sees that he cannot restrain them. The time seems long, their blood thinks scorn till it fly out and show them princes born. One more soldier is preparing to join the British army. Posthumus arrived in Britain with the Romans. Pisanio sent him a bloody cloth to indicate that he carried out the order to kill Imogen. Now Posthumus bitterly repents what he has done and his loyalty returns to her. He disappears for a lot of this play, like he is not in Act 3 or 4, and he has his his sort of moment of psychological turnaround off stage. So we, we see him at the end of Act 2, where he has pledged to tear Imogen limb from limb, and then we see him at the start of Act 5, just saying I was wrong. As penitence for killing Britain's princess, Posthumus declares he will abandon Rome and fight for Britain. So I'll die for thee, O Imogen, even for whom my life is every breath a death. The first Roman soldier he defeats is Iacomo, who is also feeling heaviness and guilt for what he did to Imogen. Roman soldiers capture Cymbeline, but Posthumus, along with Morgan, Polydor and Codwall, rescue Cymbeline and the British army. Posthumus, however, still feels so guilty that he wishes he'd died in battle. He dresses like a Roman so that the British will arrest and execute him. When he is jailed, Posthumus prays to the gods, For Imogen's dear life, take mine. He falls asleep. Stage directions then say, Enter, as in an apparition, Cecilius Leonatus, father to Posthumus. The old man's spirit is accompanied by the ghosts of Posthumus's mother and two brothers. They pray for Posthumus to Jupiter, king of the gods, and then Jupiter enters. The figure of Jupiter appears on stage and there are some wonderful original stage directions in in the folio that tell us that when the ghosts call on Jupiter, Jupiter descends in thunder and lightning, sitting upon an eagle. He throws a thunderbolt. The ghosts fall on their knees. Now, that, that, that sort of stage direction is actually comparatively rare in Shakespeare, the specificity of that, the technicality uh, of that stage direction is, isn't, isn't very common. And we're told that a character is descending on a rope, on a, on a wire. This would have been pretty spectacular. Jupiter tells the spirits not to fear for Posthumus. Whom best I love I cross, to make my gift the more delayed delighted. Be content. 
your low-laid son, our Godhead, will uplift. He shall be Lord of Lady Imogen, and happier much by his affliction made. The spirits vanish, and Posthumus wakes to find a strange piece of writing left on his chest. The jailer comes to bring him to execution, but then he is summoned to the king. Cymbeline also summons Morgan, Polydor and Codwall. He thanks them for saving his kingdom and knights them. The doctor interrupts to tell them the queen is dead. She died confessing that she wished she could have poisoned them all. Cymbeline is stunned. Heaven mend all, he says. The captive Roman soldiers enter, including Posthumus, Iachimo, Lucius and his servant, the disguised Imogen. Imogen asks where Iachimo got the ring he wears. It is Posthumus's ring, which Iachimo won from him in the wager on Imogen's chastity. Iachimo confesses the whole story of how he tricked Posthumus into believing that Imogen had been unfaithful. Now Posthumus reveals himself. Calling Iachimo an Italian fiend, he confesses to Cymbeline that he ordered Imogen's death. Every villain be called Posthumus Leonatus, oh Imogen, my queen, my life, my wife. But now it is revealed that Lucius's servant is Imogen, and she and Posthumus are finally restored to each other. They embrace, as Posthumus says, Hang there like fruit, my soul, till the tree die. Imogen is also reconciled joyfully with her father. Cymbeline is only grieved to tell her that her stepmother is dead and her stepbrother is missing. Polydor admits that he killed Clotten. Cymbeline reluctantly tells his new young friend that he must be executed for killing the prince. But Morgan intervenes. He reveals that Polydor and Codwell are really Guiderius and Averagus, Cymbeline's two long-lost sons. Cymbeline is overcome with happiness. He thought he had lost three children, now they are all restored. Posthumus reveals that he was the fourth soldier who helped save the British army. Iachimo says in dejection, My heavy conscience sinks my knee. Take that life, beseech you. But Posthumus responds, The power that I have on you is to spare you, the malice towards you to forgive you, live and deal with others better. Cymbeline follows his lead, pardons the word to all. The final thing to be revealed is the meaning of the riddle-like writing that Posthumus found on his chest after the spirits departed. It reads... When as a lion's whelp shall, to himself unknown, without seeking find, and be embraced by a piece of tender air, and when from a stately cedar shall be lopped branches which, being dead many years, shall after revive, be jointed to the old stock and freshly grow, then shall Posthumus end his miseries, Britain be fortunate and flourish in peace and plenty. The Roman soothsayer deciphers the meaning. Posthumus Leonatus is the lion's whelp. Imogen is the tender air that embraces him. Cymbeline is the stately cedar and his newfound sons are the two reviving branches. My peace we will begin, Cymbeline declares. 
and he begins the piece by telling Lucius that even though Britain won the battle, they will pay the tribute to Rome. Let a Roman and a British banner wave friendly together, he declares. Never was awarded Caesar bloody hands were washed with such a peace. So those multiple strands have finally come to a conclusion. Imogen and Posthumus are back together. The rightful heirs of the British crown are back in the court at London. Giacomo hasn't really been punished, but at least he's come to realise the error of his ways. The wicked queen is out of the picture and her crimes have been exposed and Cotton is long gone and Cymbeline is going to be paying his tribute to Rome. So the world is as it should be, but that is just the start of the conversation because there's an awful lot to say about this extraordinary play. It's a play that really kind of explores the idea of nationhood and people, but not as a, as a community closed off from others, but as a group of communities and societies living together in peace and accord. And I think that for now, for our particular time, that makes Cymbeline really a play for today. In our next episode, we'll see how Cymbeline also draws together multiple stories from the past, which give this mythic tale unexpected historical depth, as well as a new range of meanings for today. 